Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. Let us pray. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we dreamed too small, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of the things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the water of life. Stir us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas, where storms will show your mastery, where in losing sight of land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hope and to push us into the future with courage, hope, and love. Amen. Good morning, my beloved friends. By now, this 16th century prayer attributed to Sir Francis Drake, a seaman of the Queen's Royal Navy, may sound familiar to many of us. We have used it quite a bit over the past years, specifically to open nearly every meeting that we have had, nearly 30 in all, over the past three years as we have worked together to craft a 10-year vision. It also seems important for us to use this morning as we continue our seven-week journey exploring the rule of life introduced by our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, called the way of love. Now, asking for God to disturb us might sound odd at first, but I have come to appreciate that phrase as a succinct reminder that too often we can get stuck and unable to notice the abundance of all that is right around us. It is a reminder of the call of discipleship moving us out of the center of our lives in order to see the mastery of God's love in our lives. The purpose of this particular rule of life called the way of love is to help shape who and how we live pushing back the horizons of our hope and pushing us into the future with courage, hope, and love. So where are we on this journey? Here's a quick recap of where we have been and where we are today. By the end of this series, I pray that we will have these seven words grafted onto our hearts. Turn, learn, pray, worship, go, bless, and rest. Last week, we began with the reminder of what a rule of life is for people of faith, keeping in mind that it is not a strident list of do's and don'ts, but rather a framework to help order our days, to guide our feet, and to move us deeper into a faithful life of discipleship. Rules of life are sometimes written for entire religious communities or sometimes by an individual. This rule of life, called the Way of Love, was crafted by our, by our presiding bishop and offered 
as an invitation to all Episcopalians in hopes of disturbing us, if you will, to go deeper and more intentionally into lives that seek justice and mercy for all, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and respecting the dignity of every human being. Last week, we began with the invitation to turn. We reframed the kingdom of God language to uphold its centrality while replacing the over and undertones that have become a stumbling block for so many of us. We held up the mustard seed as a symbol of the wildness and chaotic nature of the kinship of God, pointing out that there is freedom and also a high price to be paid for continually surrendering to the work of turning and choosing to follow the way of love again and again. So today we move to the second facet of this way of love, learn. As we just heard in Bishop Curry's overview of this aspect of the way of love, learn is the invitation into a commitment of daily exploration of scripture and other sacred texts, drawing us closer and deeper to an experience of what it means to pattern our lives as followers of Jesus. I appreciate Bishop Curry's words about the need to engage and wrestle and be challenged to help, quote, build up the spirit, unquote. So how does our gospel text this morning weave into this invitation to learn. We continue in the verses from last week, immediately following those little parables that we unpacked, helping us to turn. Now it is evening of that very same day, and Jesus invites the disciples to leave the crowd behind, to get in a boat, and go to the other side of the shore. Jesus is understandably exhausted from all of his teachings, and so he promptly falls asleep on the boat, and he must have been in a deep REM cycle as he apparently remains asleep during a tumultuous storm. Eventually, the disciples get scared enough to jostle him awake. They give him an earful, and with words that he commits to the wind and to the sea, peace be still, the storm subsides. It seems to me that the invitation in this story is for the disciples to learn to be less afraid and have more faith. Could it be that their invitation into a new way of learning how to follow Jesus could also be a way to invite us to do the same? But there's a problem right out the gate that I have to address before we go any further this morning. As someone who has spent most of her life in classrooms and pursuing numerous degrees, learning has often been understood as the acquisition of knowledge. Couple that with Bishop Curry's encouragement to invest time studying scripture and other sacred texts, and it appears that this invitation is pretty straightforward. Maybe challenging in our busy lives, of course, but still pretty clear. In fact, for those of us that are also reading Scott Gunn's companion booklet right now by the same title, The Way of Love, Gunn suggests four very clear paths for how to live out this area of this way of love. First, read the Bible. Just pick it up, he says, and start reading. 
though I believe he is wise to warn us that this is often not the best thing to do alone. Second, try a daily devotional. He says there are so many to choose from, collections of writings that have pieces of scripture, and then meditations and reflections. Third, we could join a class or a Bible study, and many of us are doing just that, with Trinity offering more classes this past year than ever before. And finally, read other spiritual books, books that are sacred texts that are outside of the canon of our tradition. You can find others to discuss and learn together from those texts as well. Seems pretty clear. So what's the problem? I'm going to go a little way out on a limb this morning to suggest that perhaps, perhaps I am not alone in what I would call a lifetime of suspicion, a hermeneutic of suspicion, or what I might describe as an approach avoidance relationship with scripture. For so many of us, for so long, scripture has been weaponized and used as a tool to do irreparable harm, creating caverns of shame, separating people from their inherent goodness and love, dividing families, destroying communities of faith, and undermining attempts to create and sustain beloved community. So today, I want to simply acknowledge what feels to me like two competing realities. First, the primacy of Holy Scripture in our faith tradition, and also the reality that this work is complicated and challenging for many of us. There is what I would call a prerequisite amount of work necessary for many of us to open our minds, open our hearts, and then eventually open our Bibles in order for us to learn. For that reason, this invitation to learn in this way of love today feels less about acquiring knowledge and so much more about developing a posture of openness of healing, of reconciliation, and perhaps reframing the beauty of what Scripture has to offer to us all. I see this happening at Trinity already. We are becoming a community of learners. Whether through the ongoing sacred ground groups that have been going on now for over a year, engaging in deep conversations about faith and race, or some of the books that we have studied together over the last couple of years, Joan Chittister's The Time Is Now and Scott Gunn's The Way of Love are two that come to mind, or perhaps attending our Spring Faith and Race Film and Dialogue series, or participating in the monthly Saturday Men's Bible Study. All of these are helping us to turn in order to then reorient our hearts perhaps heal some of our hurts, and then just maybe, with God's help, open scripture to learn. I want to share one way that has helped me do this, one thing that has come across my path, trying to find my way back to all that is good and beautiful and holy and challenging and inspirational and life-giving about scripture. Written in 2005 by Harvard Divinity Professor Harvey Cox, 
How to Read the Bible acknowledges and explores the challenges that I have just laid out. Cox beautifully describes three different ways of reading what we could would be best to remember is actually not one single book, but truly the Bible is a single bound collection of 66 books written over 1400 years, including the genres of story and poem and song, genealogy, history, myth, drama, cultural norms and traditions. So back to these three ways. These three ways of reading scripture, they are different, none privileged over the other, but if not woven together, can leave us standing either hurt or simply on the outside looking in, keeping the power and possibility of scripture at arm's length. In short, here are the three approaches he suggests. First, scripture is sometimes read as literal story. Think of children in Sunday school, perhaps your own experience hearing and learning stories from Sunday school teachers or maybe being read to from children's Bibles. Second, scripture read through the lens of academic study. Think seminary classes and all the learning about the historical context these scripts are rooted in. Think about scripture then from the third perspective as spiritual, inspirational, and identity making. Think of how scripture has been used by marginalized communities throughout its history to reclaim meaning and purpose in the face of great trials. Think of music and poems calling out the power and promise of God's love and liberation. By combining and weaving and learning about these three different and complementary ways of studying our sacred texts, I have started making my way back to this part of this rule of life. It is a lifetime commitment and presents some very real challenges along the way. And I have determined for my life and my path, it is truly worth it. Cox offers a beautiful story sharing when and how he discovered the third approach and how impactful it has been in his lifetime. Each one of the three approaches is woven together and builds chronologically in his life. I want to end this morning offering a powerful excerpt from his text, making the case for the power of scripture to change our lives. It does not negate the challenges or the scars that many of us bear, but I do believe that it helps point towards a new life-giving path going forward as we commit to learn, he writes. This third way of reading scripture for me began in September 1963. I was arrested along with 40 other civil rights demonstrators, 30 of them young black kids and a few of their parents from a small city in the American South. We were apprehended for taking part in a peaceful protest march organized by the local chapter of Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. On the Saturday after we were incarcerated, the warden, a mild-mannered, middle-aged white man, paused in front of the cell where the white protesters were being held. Well, 
he smiled, scratching his head. Them colored kids been asking for a Bible so they can have Sunday school and church tomorrow. Still smiling, he shook his head and said to us, So I gave him one. <laughs> After all, can't do no harm, I guess. What the warden clearly did not know was that the reason these young people were in jail in the first place was because they had been listening to Dr. King. They had learned they were children of God and that they had an equal right to dignity and equality. For them, the Bible was so much more than a collection of beguiling stories from long ago and also much more than quasi-historical documents to be parsed, analyzed, dated, and classified. For them, the Bible was a summons to be all they were meant to be. It was a living link to a long history of liberation movements of which theirs was only the most recent. What I learned in that jail cell is that the Bible is something so much more than any one way of these approaches. It is an invitation a living record of an open-ended history of which we can have a part. It is, in fact, a still unfinished story. So, my dear friends, as we continue to make our way on this journey, may we find the courage to be, stir to be disturbed just long enough to acknowledge the challenges that so much of Scripture hold for so many of us and to also dare to linger in the text, opening our hearts to all there is to learn as we follow on the way of love. May it be so.